electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Karen Feinerman. Coming up on Fast, China's stock market mania, the rally, relentless as new Chinese investors pile in. We will tell you what is fueling this frenzy and break down the key names you need to watch. Also ahead, banks battered in today's session. Why one top investor says there's more pain on the way. He'll tell us how he is playing it. And later, a housing triple play, the three charts that could help you build some serious gains. But we start off with a Teflon tech rally. The Nasdaq seemingly unstoppable, hitting another record high in today's session. The index is now up more than 17% this year. And check out the big tech names hitting fresh all-time highs in today's session. Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, all marking new highs. But is this titanic tech run headed straight for a giant iceberg? Guy. <laughs> Wait. Did you read that? You hesitated. You hesitated <laughs> okay. reading that. This you is, were not pleased with bu- that the copy bubble in and my you hesitated. Head. The bubble in my head literally said, should I read this or should I skip over it? Titanic tech run headed straight <laughs> for a giant iceberg. And I just, I went, I went with it. I thought Guy's a student of history. He's also Great an job. avid watcher of movies, a fan of Leo DiCaprio. And so I thought, you know, let's go with it. Let's, let's go with this something? metaphor. No, I am. Uh, I am a fan of Leo, and you know, I know you might find this just preposterous, but Leo is a huge Fast Money fan, so I think we all should collectively give a shout out <laughs> right. to Leo DiCaprio. Let's, let's, I mean, cut, let's cut with that. Yeah. Okay, so here you go. So I was talking to, I was talking to the great Dan Nathan uh, earlier today, and we were just talking about the move in Amazon. Amazon's up 3% today. Amazon is added this month, which I think today is the 9th of July. Just this month, it's added almost a quarter of a trillion dollars to its market cap. I think there are only 22 companies in the S&P 500 that have a market cap of a quarter of a trillion dollars. It's a staggering thing. So if you're watching this and if that makes sense to you, that's fantastic. You understand it a lot better than I do. But at a certain point, the chasm between, obviously, growth and value uh, has, to, has to correct itself. And unfortunately, I think the correction is... The Nasdaq giving up the ghost. What is what? What does tip that off, Seagrasso, in your view? Because you could have thought that a while. You could have thought that when Amazon crossed three thousand for the first time last week and missed out on the latest, you know, two hundred points to the upside or so. So it's funny you say that because I'm I'm looking at a chart that back uh, to April, that's when Amazon became overbought. It rallied fifty six percent from that point till now. So it's been running at or around overbought for months now. And the problem is when people want to buy the market, they buy large cap tech, they buy growth, they buy small cap tech, but they don't want to Guy's point. They don't want to buy value. I don't know if that gap between value and tech can narrow until there's a vaccine. So tech will keep marching on higher. You could have some volatility, a correction, but I don't think you're going to have a cataclysmic fall off a cliff mm-hmm. because you still have the Fed as a backstop. You still have stimulus 
And people take that money and they put it into growth. End of story. Dead stop. For some investors, though, Steve, and I know I know you all know this, you know, for some investors, stocks occupy or some big cap tech stocks can occupy both growth as well as value. And Karen, you're you probably are in that boat when it comes to names like a Microsoft or, or an Apple. But at what point does that stock migrate from value into just simply growth? Right. Well, they, I am long Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, um, some Facebook. Uh, I think that there, as the market gets higher, they're actually, you know, they're not uh, as expensive relative to the market as they used to be, kind of, which doesn't doesn't make sense. I mean, as as rates go down, multiples expand, right? And um, they are. Also still, though, areas of growth, even with the pandemic, you'll see some of them with tremendous growth. So I don't have another alternative is also a big part of it. I don't know where else to put the money. I mean, Apple has run a lot. It's certainly not cheap, um, especially when you think about the hardware part of the business. But if you think about the services part of the business, it's not expensive either. Alphabet also, I think, is not crazy expensive. But I don't have any other uh, any other better ideas, so I'm kind of just sticking with them. And just to, if I could answer one of your earlier questions, when does that divergence start to correct and converge between growth and value? I sort of agree with Steve. I think if we get um, either a vaccine or a, or a cure that is really works, or we see numbers start to come down dramatically, then I think that value will really start to get some momentum. We saw it briefly a month or two ago, and then that really petered out. That's what I think has to happen to get those two sectors to convert. Yeah. Tim? Well, um, by the way, it's haircut day, Mel. It's exciting. It's going to be my first in five months, so look out tomorrow. You know, it's um, funny because so the front, when you, when you, front looks fine, but it's the back. There's a, I mean, people, America there's doesn't a big, see the back, but it's, a huge, it's long back there. There's a huge COVID party going on in the back. And obviously, we have to be careful about how we congregate <laughs> back there, too. So we're just going to get rid of it. We're going to break it down. Um, and in terms of what the NASDAQ is doing, again, the numbers are 24 percent outperformance to the S&P. And we're talking about uh, growth and value. We're talking about tech and non-tech. Uh, you also have to be careful what the, 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 the definitions of tech are. I mean, it, yes, Amazon and AWS has a high growth tech business uh, data center, et cetera. But uh, look, what is e-commerce anymore? I mean, ultimately, this is this is where most commerce is getting done is is, uh, you know, when Best Buy uh, does business, are they do they become a tech story? Are they you know, are they a specialty retailer in big box? So um, I think, you know, the the recharacterization of the indices is something that we're we're going through now. And the former definitions don't mean a whole lot. But but the, the dichotomy, the divergence, the chasm as guy used between growth and value is somewhere around 900 basis points on traditional valuations. And this is this is you know, this is a three standard deviation moment. So, um, you know, the question is, and John Roke from Wolf was on yesterday talking about how financials really need to do something for the S&P to have a decent year. Uh, and the numbers that, that he didn't get into last night, but I, I read it was a great note. Uh, basically, nine times in the last 30 years, uh, financials have been down. And those nine years, the S&P was down. So bank earnings next week are really important, even for people uh, that think that banks largely are, are caught in this conservative guide. We really don't know where they're going to be. Uh, the price performance right now, I still think, should be something for the overall market to worry about, even though I have been glass half full on banks, to be clear. 
All right, let's uh, talk more about this tech run in the broader markets. Let, joining us now is Lori Calvacina, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC. Lori, great to see you. Great to see you, too. Um, your year-end price target for the S&P 500 is 27.50. So do you think this tech run that we've been seeing is really Teflon tech run? You think that's going to break? Well, look, I think the market as a whole is overextended, and tech is certainly not immune from those issues. Um, one of the things that we've been looking at on NASDAQ specifically is if you look at the CFTC data on U.S. equity futures positioning. Um, what we're seeing there is that a cyclical area like small cap positioning has been very, very low. Investors are still very cautious. But if you look at NASDAQ future positioning among asset managers, it's actually pretty close to historical peak, and it's continued to climb. Um, we saw general positioning get stretched back in February. That's what NASDAQ looks like at the moment. So, you know, to me, I do think there's crowding risk. And if you see that crowding risk unfold in the tech space, it will harm the broader market. That would just be one of several potential contributors to volatility this summer. When you saw that crowding back in February, was that preceding the record highs? And I ask you this because I'm wondering if we are yeah. laying the groundwork to, to retest those highs before uh, that, that pullback that you're forecasting for later. You you saw that extreme level, that peak positioning in things like Russell 2000 futures, S&P futures, but you did not see it in the NASDAQ futures. Um, they weren't low, but they weren't at similar peaks the way the S&P 500 futures are. So what this data is telling us is that NASDAQ all along through this has been marching to the beat of its own drummer. So, Lori, thanks again for being here. So the Russell, you mentioned it briefly, but the IWM, yeah. I think, closed below 140. In my opinion, and I might be wrong, I typically am wrong, but in my opinion, the Russell has led us to the upside over the years, has led us to the downside. Uh, it clearly didn't get anywhere close to the highs. 135 was the June 11th low, I think. Is the NASDAQ, is, excuse me, is the, is the Russell trying to tell us something for the broader market? I absolutely think you've hit the nail on the head, Guy. I mean, if you look at Russell 2000 relative to S&P, and we also look at it relative to NASDAQ now, um, it's really the same way NASDAQ is functioning as a defensive vehicle. The Russell 2000 is functioning as a pure cyclical vehicle. And in mid-May, when we really started to see economic surprises pick up, and there were a lot of hopes and dreams on this economy and this you know, sort of second wave being avoided, the reacceleration, the reengagement, the reopening really taking off, that's when the Russell 2000 briefly took off in terms of relative performance, but it only lasted a week. By the beginning of June, it was gone. And that really coincided when, you know, sort of doubts about reopening, concerns about the second wave of the virus reemerged. Investors were willing to play the Russell when those hopes and dreams were running strong. But as soon as those hopes and dreams started to get questioned, the Russell faded again. So it is absolutely a barometer right now. Lori, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. Do you think that we're going to see some kind of stimulus that will serve to put a floor under the market? And if so, how big? And is that priced in already? So I think stimulus is largely priced in to a degree. Um, you know, I think kind of getting an extra round out of Washington, um, I do think that would help markets a little bit in the short term. There have definitely been some jitters on that. But when it comes to the Fed and the stimulus that we've been getting from the Federal Reserve, I do feel like that's that's gotten generally priced in at this point. I think that's really what put the floor on the market, caused the multiples to expand. Um, you know, I think the problem with all these stimulus ideas is there's only so far they can go. You've really got to see the confirmation in the economic data. And this market is still very short term trading on these headlines. People are watching the open table and home-based data very, very closely. And if those indicators don't cooperate, if there's a lag between stimulus coming in and those indicators perking up again, you're gonna have a problem in the market. 
Where do investors hide out? Where, where should they hide out, Lori, uh, if, if, if your forecast for 2750 comes true? So, you know, I would say on kind of more of the defensive side, we like utilities. Um, we do think tech stole utilities thunder back during the drawdown. Utilities didn't outperform the way it should have. And now you've got a very cheap sector with very safe dividend yields. Um, if you look at healthcare, that's another one of our overweights. And we really think of it as long-term secular growth. In terms of the secular growth theme versus value, we're actually neutral there on a 12-month view. But within that secular growth bucket, we think healthcare looks more appealingly valued than tech. We're neutral on the tech space. Um, and then just in case we're wrong, um, you know, we do like to have a cyclical play in our back pocket. And we've gone through, looked at things like financials, the commodities, the consumers and industrials. And we think industrials is probably your best play if this cyclical rebound, you know, if that data does start to firm up, if we do get animal spirits back in the market, um, it just looks much more attractively valued to us and frankly safer um, in terms of fundamentals than things like financials or consumer. Lori, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Lori Calvacina, Steve Grasso. 2750. You think right. that that works out for the end of the year? Uh, I'm hoping it does not work out yeah. for the end of the year. And I think that I think that you can see uh, a little bit of a drawdown. I don't think it's going to be that deep. I think people will rush back in to buy the market as long as the Fed is there to backstop. The market's going to continue to go sideways to higher. Yeah. Karen, when you were asking about stimulus, did you mean fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus? Yeah. I was thinking fiscal stimulus. I mean, I think we got to see something by the end of the month before Congress goes on recess. And I think that both sides want to give away as much money as they can. Yeah. So I do think that'll help sort of put a floor on the market. All right. Let's turn to the other side of the market here. Among the biggest losers in the trade today, banks, the biggest names getting slammed just days before earnings season begins. J.P. Morgan, of course, kicking off second quarter earnings season on Tuesday. Um, Tim, the performance, I mean, they were weak across the board today. I don't know what investors were. Are you worried about banks for next week? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the price action. And again, this underperformance gets to a place where banks look very, very cheap to me relative to the market. We've said that a couple different times. Either the market is wrong uh, or, or, or banks are wrong. And, and so I, I still think it's an overly conservative approach to banks. Uh, I think the stress tests through a lot of, you know, a lot of just confusion around the balance sheets, how good they are. I think there's some concern just about how the banks suddenly uh, are, were reminded that they're under the thumb of the Federal Reserve or effectively uh, the nationalization dynamics in the banking sector going into election season. Uh, the, the backdrop from the regulatory perspective for banks for the last three and a half years has been as bad, as good as it's ever been in the last 10 years, at least, or certainly pre-crisis. So, um, these are concerning elements of how banks are trading. And as I mentioned, I don't think the market ultimately can do a whole lot if banks are going to finish down here. Um, I think the banks have a lot of bad news priced into them. I don't have any problems owning J.P. Morgan. I, you know, the price action over the last you know, couple weeks, um, two weeks ago, if you'd asked me, uh, how do I feel about J.P. Morgan? I'd say best of breed, a bank that I want to own. And everything that I've heard so far in terms of uh, the provisions they've made is they've been very conservative. I don't feel any differently today. I may feel differently the day after earnings, but right now, uh, my is banks have been caught up in expectations that it's a tough, unclear road for credit. Let's get more on the banks and bring in Christopher Whalen. Um, you've seen him here before, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, great to speak with you. Hey, good. Nice to speak with you, Melissa. Uh, uh, Tim, Tim opened up by saying a lot of them are, are inexpensive. Um, so that begs the question, value trade or value trap at this point? 
<laughs> well, I was a buyer coming out of April, especially for my preferreds. I've been rotating into them because they were so cheap. You could buy income up the capital structure below par, and you don't get that very often. And I had also loaded up on a bit of U.S. Bank. But frankly, between then and now, I just decided that I still have no visibility on credit to you know your conversation, right? And I think that's what's weighing on the street. We had a nice rally. We had JP back at 1.3 times book at one point. And they're still relatively strong, the, the good names. But the weaker names in the group have been suffering. You know, Capital One, uh, I even worry about Goldman, uh, because, you know, we, we have issues with them, and they have high-risk uh, franchises, both in terms of credit and other types of risk. So I think the street's pulled back because we still don't know, mm -hmm. and we still have no guidance. You know, there's no guidance out there, and the street has pulled their estimates back, too. We're, they're talking about this year. That's right. really all the visibility we have. So what I tell people is watch credit. If credit comes in light versus Q1, that's good. That tell you, to his earlier point, right, it tells you people are getting more comfortable with what's coming. Right. But if we're loading another $50 billion on the fireplace for the remainder of the year, then that tells you that we see a big credit so loss coming for the full uh, 2020. So, Chris, I mean, oftentimes we talk about financials, we talk about banks as sort of a, a monolith, but obviously there are many different types of financials in that basket. So when you're saying that Correct. you're concerned about credit and concerned about credit losses, um, the, the big unknowable here at this point in time, um, what sorts of credit are you most concerned? I mean, I'm trying to get at, you know, which financial has the most exposure to the most concerning kind of credit to have. The small commercial customer, which is typically a small bank customer, worries me a lot. Main Street, Melissa. Think of all the different types of small to medium-sized businesses that have been impacted by COVID, right? It's an enormously wide swath of the economy. As you go up the food chain to the bigger banks, you know, the U.S. banks, J.P. Morgans, they're good performers. They know how to manage credit. I'm not worried about them, but I am worried about some of the narrower businesses like the Capital Ones that are facing, not today, but maybe in October, November, a big uptick in unemployment and a big uptick in credit costs. You know, I'm, I'm very concerned about the number of enterprises that have managed to support their employees and keep everything together for a few months, and now they're letting people go. I had a young man serving me dinner the other night in Stone Harbor, New Jersey, who had been a marketing executive for Alvin Ailey Dance Theater, and they had to let everybody go. So think about that kind of example multiplied over this entire consumer small business complex. And then meanwhile, we're going to have a record year in residential mortgages. This could be well over $3 trillion this year, up 40% on volume because of the Fed. So that's a bright spot, but I think consumer and commercial credit, anything having to do with uh, multi-use um, you know, commercial real estate that has any kind of a retail aspect to it is, is going to be in big trouble. Hey, Chris, what, what, what do you think? Do you think this is just more of a macro call? When you look at the XLF, it's down 23% year to date. When you look at the XLK, it's up 18% year to date. Is this less to do with the banks specifically and more to do with investor preference? Um, I think it is a combination of, of the two. I think a lot of investors don't fully understand what's coming at us because it's not like 2009. This is not a liquidity crisis. 
This is kind of a grinding credit discovery process and resolution process, which is going to take years. And I think, you know, when we talk about the 30s as, as a comparison, we may need help for the courts and for governmental agencies around the country to deal with the dislocation of this kind of uh, credit event. It's, a, it's more like the mid-30s, and I think that that's where we have to focus people because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the strength of the U.S. economy is that we resolve things like this quickly. We don't let them sit around. But I do think, uh, you know, between this year and next year, it's going to be a tough story for banks. You know, the, the estimates have earnings down 50% this year from last year. I think it's going to be more than that. Okay. Chris, thank you. Okay. Thanks, guys. Be well. Chris Whalen. Guy Dami, in terms of the most troubled areas uh, in financials, Chris, you know, pretty much hit it on the head in terms of the ones exposed to small and medium-sized businesses. That would probably be regional. Yeah, and it's interesting. No, and, and he, yeah, and Capital One was the one of the names mm-hmm. he mentioned. And, you know, what we're seeing, and I think we've talked about this now for a while, the, the having to have nots in terms of companies that have done things well and companies that have just impaled themselves. And I put Wells Fargo in the impaled themselves category and trading at a steep discount now to tangible book. And maybe you get a trading bounce off earnings next week. But think about it. They took a $13.7 billion loan loss provision last quarter, which is up 413 percent year over year. You got to wonder what happens this quarter. Again, maybe you get a bounce. I do agree with Tim the J.P. Morgan probably is absolutely worth the trade at these levels, given that seemingly, you know, 30 or so trading days ago was $115 stock. But I'll say this, and I'm not suggesting anybody does this on this panel or on the network, but you can't look to the banks when they're doing well and say what a barometer they are for the broader economy and then discount that when they're trading poorly, which they are now. It's you got to you know, it's it's. It's good. It's, if it's good on the way up, you got to take the bad on the way down. And I do absolutely think the banks are telegraphing something. Here. I mean, the, the, I think one issue, Karen, is that we don't know what reality really is, given all the stimulus that has been handed out to both businesses, small, medium, even large, uh, as well as consumers. We just don't know uh, what the what the depth of the pain is. Right. We don't know, and I think we'll get a little bit of clarity this uh, coming earnings cycle, but we still won't know because, uh, you know, things have changed in the last two or three weeks a lot, and this, what they're going to tell us, um, you know, next week is only up to June 30. So, I, I, clearly, I think giant provisions are coming, but I also think, in a name like J.P. Morgan, giant provisions for a while are baked in. And I think not everything is bad. I mean, Chris touched on, you know, mortgage market. Just think about the last quarter of the asset management business. Think about the capital markets business. Think about, you know, people are concerned about auto loans not paying, but the value of those, you know, used autos now, there's maybe a good floor there. You know, even for residential, prices are firm and houses are selling. So when you try to think about really what is the credit risk that's being priced in, it seems gigantic to me. Now, that could come to pass, for sure. That could. But I think, you know, for me, J.P. Morgan is absolutely the, the best of the best. And I think it's too, I think the, it's too cheap mm-hmm. for what I think is an extraordinary franchise. Chris may absolutely be right. They could earn well less than half what they earned last year. But that's not what makes up most of the value when I think about an ongoing business like J.P. Morgan. It sort of doesn't matter what they do this year. Coming up... 
We're going to go shopping for some opportunity. One big bright spot in retail today. We've got that name and how our traders are trading it. Plus, investors piling into Chinese stocks. One of our traders will break down the names you need to know about. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Walmart climbing higher today. The retail giant jumping nearly 3% today. Analysts over at KeyBank saying Walmart Plus could mean some big gains for the retailing giant. KeyBank specifically says uh, revenue could approach $2 billion annually, assuming $15 million in membership and a 15% churn. We should note that the stock is up 7% in just the past week. That is pretty much the entire year's gains in just the past week. Karen, is this expensive now? Yes. No, I don't think it's expensive. And just to bring up, you know, last night was a very, very rare, maybe the first time ever, two of us with the same final trade, um, which was Dan and I from Walmart. I think that it's not expensive. Certainly if you look at, okay, they're taking on Amazon and you look at where Amazon trades and back at AWS, you know, as a higher multiple business, this differential is enormous, enormous, enormous. So I think that there's a lot of room to run there. It's not crazy expensive. In addition, I think you said it's only up modestly for the year. It's been a big beneficiary of um, the coronavirus situation. And I think that it's good for them for capitalizing on it, being aggressive. I think there's a lot of upside here. It's not crazy expensive at all. You know, the key bank analyst was also making the point, uh, Steve, that having the physical footprint and having store inventory has really been an advantage uh, in this time of COVID. And, and if Amazon wanted to have the same kind of footprint, it would have to go way beyond Whole Foods. And so they see that as a continuing advantage over Amazon. I, I totally agree with that. And remember those rumors or the speculation that coal stores would be a good fit for Amazon for uh for those sites to where they could do the exact same thing that you just mentioned. I had said the other night, though, that Walmart, every time you see it spike higher like this, it sells off, usually in two to three days. It didn't, it didn't do it this time. That's atypical for the stock. It's not overbought yet, but I still think you should take profits here. I think this is overextended, to say the least. Guy Dami, just quickly, um, if Walmart Hi. and Amazon can coexist, and then they are, and let's say they can coexist even with this Walmart Plus offering, um, where would Walmart be taking share from? I mean, would, it, would Target really be maybe the, the loser in this whole sort of menage a trois, if you will? Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. I don't even know if you're allowed to say that on, on cable TV. Apparently I just it said that. Why is it something wrong? Did. There's three did. big retailers. They're all fighting. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Watching. I mean, Target seems the most logical um, the, the loser in, in, this, in this triumvirate, to your point. Um, but then you go and you look, and I know Steve and I, I think it was Tuesday night, Steve self would you rather, then he would you rather to me. And we came up with the conclusion that probably Costco uh, is a name that we talk about all the time. Makes sense. Look at the move in Costco today. Now, quickly about Costco. You traded up today, all-time high, closed at the February prior all-time high, and pretty big volume. 
I'm inclined to take profits here, and Costco's had a huge move. But to again answer your question, uh, I'm not necessarily sure that Target is a loser here. And on valuation alone, I think Target is worth owning. You know, I, I'm not sure why anybody thinks Walmart can't compete head on with Amazon. Of course they can. They're the biggest retailer in the world. Walmart competes on price. And when they started to lose ground is when they lost uh, that focus and they tried to be other things. And Walmart went through a difficult period about three years ago where inside the store there was chaos. There wasn't enough assistance. There was uh, they were trying to get into, uh, you know, different different food skews. And ultimately, Walmart competing on price now competing in terms of they have logistics, they have procurement, they have ERP, they have fulfillment. That's what they do. That's what their stores are. So, you know, to the extent that we've talked about how they are kind of an Amazon, uh, even though they were the first ones to build all that stuff. So uh, I think that this is a very important move. And I think uh, it will be at the expense probably more of a target. Um, and if you look at that chart on Walmart over the last couple of years, um, you know, outside of the pullback that we had around the crisis, that's a pretty strong two year chart on Walmart. And I, I again, I was skeptical. I was skeptical early in the crisis when this was massively outperforming. But that multiple at 24 times trailing and I'll use the trailing multiple because, again, uh, in this environment, the fact that these guys are doing better, uh, the same or slightly better, that makes them even cheaper. Uh, that blended multiple, that e-commerce multiple, means Walmart's worth a lot more. Guy, did you raise your hand? I, well, I briefly, but I hand. didn't want to leave it because, no, I'm not always raising my hand. I just, yeah, you know, it, what happens when a lot of people text you at once? What's that term that the, all the cool people use? Your phone is, like, exploding or something? Yeah. Well, that's happening right now with me because apparently Tim has like some small animal over his right <laughs> shoulder on the, that couch. It's not your hair. It's, like, it's, it's like the actual a, a, fuzzy thing on your couch, Tim. Okay, I, yes, yes, yes. We, we keep furry animals on our couch. Um, can, I ask, can I ask a question? Okay, go ahead. Teacher, yeah. can, can, guy, can Guy stop asking questions? Because I, I, think, I think it's disruptive to the class. <laughs> going to ignore all of you. Coming up, if you're itching to catch the rally in Chinese stocks, we'll break down the names you need to own right now. Plus, call it home sweet home. The home sweet home trade. A top technician will lay out what is next for home construction stocks. More Fast Money up next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. You are looking at the FXI surging as investors rush in to get in on these Chinese stocks. It has been pure market mania for Chinese investors. Eunice Yoon's in Beijing with more. 
Beijing is attempting to rein in investor euphoria. The influential China Securities Journal today cautioned investors to respect the market, remember to manage risks, and invest rationally for the long term. The advice came only four days after the same government-backed paper fueled a buying frenzy, talking up the importance of a healthy bull market for China's economic recovery. In eight days alone, Chinese stocks have added one trillion dollars in value. The stock craze has raised fears of a repeat of the boom and bust cycle of 2015, when investors, most of them individual first-time traders, took on too much debt. This week, the authorities cracked down on more than 250 illegal margin platforms. Even so, some brokerages say requests to open new accounts are up one third from a month ago, with people online posting screenshots of their gains and saying. They feel invincible. Eunice Yoon, CNBC Business News, Beijing. Thank you, Eunice.、Um, and Tim, what is remarkable is that the thing to remember here is is the individual investor over in China has a much greater impact on the broader markets than they do here. They're much greater force. They're much greater numbers. The dollar amounts are greater, etc. Liquidity in the local market is astounding. People think that these are markets that aren't very deep, et cetera, et cetera. No, you know it's interesting because a few weeks back we we talked about the the nationalization law and the concerns on Hong Kong and some of the issues in terms of delisting and whatnot. And we said, what's this going to mean for the Hong Kong listed stocks, the FXI? It, it's nothing but a bonanza.、Uh, and so we talked about how the government has certainly been leaning on the wealth effect from the market.、Uh, but but if you think about some of the consumption gains that have come out of COVID nineteen, think about how they happened in China and in Asia as well. Um, so there's there's other companies other than Baba. Even though I think Baba is a, a great way to play some of those consumption trends, like NetEase, which is online gaming.、Um, the the engagement trends have been extraordinary. It's a 65 billion dollar company has different pieces to their model, including Udao, which is a essentially online education.、Uh, there's Tal Education, ticker TAL, which is a 42 billion dollar company. These are big big companies.、Uh, uh, online education, foreign、uh, foreign training, seminars, etc. Uh, the engagement and the size of their audience is, is massive. Tencent streaming, TME,、uh, 43 million subs, and, and soaring in terms of their growth and their engagement and their subscription value. So I, I urge investors to look at, at the companies that are trading here that are of size and that are real businesses. And, and we know that in the trade war, the dynamics of control of the internet and 21st century tech. China's got their own leaders, and and there are real companies to invest in, and they're flying right now. Yeah, Grasso. So so it gets back to where we were when we looked at Amazon before. All the names that that Tim just mentioned, and and all of the indices are all in an overbought on an RSI status, but it doesn't mean they can't go higher. And as long as we continue to have global easing, and the Chinese media. Coming out saying it's healthy to foster a bull market, all of these names will and can continue to go higher. They all look parabolic on a chart, but unfortunately for the short investor, they're still going higher. I mean, guy, I would think the hope is that China is farther along in terms of the the post-pandemic recovery、uh, than the U.S. and and maybe what we're seeing there is a recipe for what we could be seeing here in the United States. Well.、Uh, If, if that is in fact the case, that would be fantastic. I, I'm hard pressed to believe that's the case. Who knows what's real and what's not real coming out of China? To me, the takeaway is the fact that they're doing more jawboning to their market than we seem to be doing here. And I look at it, and again, I'm obviously always the, the half-empty person. But 
you know, why do they want to goose their market so much? I think there's a real concern that the rhetoric between the Trump administration and the Chinese is continuing to get ratcheted up. And, you know, I'm willing to bet, uh, although our market's done really well, it, it, President Trump, if you asked him uh, and you slapped a lie detector on him, We're he can't be markets. happy with how well the Chinese have, uh, stock markets performed. I think that's a good point, Tim. I, I, I just think... I just think, yeah, look, sorry for barging in there, Guy, but, but look, we're, we're, boost, we're goosing our markets all day long. The Federal Reserve is talking about backstopping this and that. They're talking about buying ETFs. They're talking about stepping in the middle. The president is constantly talking about the market, is constantly talking about uh, the market as a barometer for the economy. You don't think uh, that in this country we're not using the market and manipulating it? You know, to me, um, that's why I, I just, you know, I'm not right or wrong. It's what's happening. And, and I think what China's doing is probably looking over here and seeing what's happening in this economy, in this market, and the wealth that's being created, because that is what the Federal Reserve targets. They tell you they, they target that. So, I, you know, that's how I feel. Still ahead, home builders making a comeback in the past few months. Coming up, we're getting out one top technician to reveal the names he likes. Plus, tech and a tear, and there's one stock in particular that could send the sector to even more record highs. That name, when fast money returns. Welcome back to Pass Money. Check out housing stocks getting hammered today. The ITB home construction ETF falling nearly 3% after a 33% run in the past three months. Our next guest sees opportunity building in some corners of this housing space. Let's go off the charts with Ari Wald of Oppenheimer. Hey, Ari, what are you looking at? Hi, Melissa. Well, as we think about market leadership, it can be clearly identified in technology and Internet and, and healthcare, And I think that stays. Those are where you want to be overweight. But as we think about sprinkling in some cyclical ideas for this possibility of rotation yeah, into cyclicals, uh, the area that really stands out to us here is housing. Uh, first chart I want to look at is the iShares housing ETF. It's ticker ITB. Really just has been, af- after the big runoff, the March low has been in this narrowing range. It's above its 200-day moving average. The breakout's not yet conclusive, but I think there are enough positives to buy this as a trade with a protective stop at $41 support. Here's the key positive. It's the second chart that I'm showing. It's looking at the top weighting within the CTF. It's DR Horton. It's a 14% weighting. I'm showing it on this very long-term scale going back 15 years to show DR Horton is attempting uh, uh, to break higher through 15-year resistance dating back to its peak from 2005. So our take is that DR Horton uh, resumes that larger 15-year breakout and pulls the group with it. This is the biggest weight in there. Final chart is a play on housing, uh, Home Depot. It's a derivative uh, home improvement retailing, uh, but probably best idea of all to play it here, quality name, also consolidating, it's formed a what we would call a bullish pennant pattern. It's allowing overbought conditions to recede. Uh, typically, these are continuation patterns that break in the direction of trend. To us, this trend is higher. We think you get that breakout, which would also mark a breakout above the stock's February peak, which would be a, a much bigger breakout on top of that. Ari, thank you. Good to see you. Ari Wald of Oppenheimer. See, Grasso, we go to you for this. Uh, you know, it's funny that he picked Home Depot. Ordinarily, I would pick that, uh, too. But Lowe's actually has a nicer chart for me and has not 
taken a step back. And as far as those two top holdings in that builder index, Lennar or D.R. Horton, D.R. Horton is being rewarded because they're building spec houses. There's not enough. So once that was a headwind, now it's a tailwind. I'd be a buyer of D.R. Horton. I'd be a buyer of Lowe's. All right. Coming up, tech on a tear, driving the Nasdaq to another record high in today's session. If you're looking for a way to play catch up, options traders have one name they're eyeing for a surge. We'll tell you what it is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. The Nasdaq hitting another record, and options traders are betting on an even bigger breakout for one tech titan. Mike Co. joins us with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So we're taking a look at Google today. Google traded well over two times its average daily call volume and actually calls outpaced puts by about four to one. A lot of that activity was weekly call options, unsurprisingly, given today's strength. But we also saw buyers of the 1,600 strike calls that expire next Friday. They were paying about $4 for those, making bullish bets that the rally could continue. Now, that may not be that surprising considering Google is basically trading right at its all-time highs. That's an area where you often will see some resistance. So this could be ways that they're using stock substitutes. In other words, risking very little just in case it does actually break through and hit those new highs next week. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, presidential hopeful Joe Biden unveiling the details of his economic plan today. And there's one group of stocks that could be poised to light up as a result. Stick around. More Fast Money coming up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden unveiling his economic plan earlier today. And of the sectors it aims to boost, there is one group in particular that may be a big beneficiary, and that would be cannabis stocks. And our very own cannabis king, Tim Seymour, is breaking this down. Tim, what you see in this? Well, you know, look, legislative catalysts have been part of the investment story. I, I really think that ultimately it's a bottom-up story. It's a consumption story. It's a, a CPG story. But, but what the campaign released was essentially endorsement for the States Act, which means the state should be left to actually run this and be left alone and actually legally run these businesses, which effectively they are right now. But then talk about supporting the federal medical cannabis market. So uh, that's an elegant way to me to begin the descheduling nationally of, of cannabis. And medical markets obviously exist uh, around the country now. Uh, there's a handful or more, two handfuls of fully adult recreational markets uh, that exist. But uh, dealing with the criminal justice issues around cannabis is part of the complexity of this issue. There's a lot of people sitting in jail cells in this country uh, purely just for possession uh, and essentially drug only charges. Part of what the, the Democrat Party, Democratic Party is endorsing is that people that are in jail for drug policy, uh, for drug infractions that are purely just using or having a drug issue, but not any other additional problems related to that should be let go. And, and, and but, you know, as it relates to cannabis, there are huge legislative catalysts for the fall. I think the market, as I said last night, there are companies that are executing now and show fantastic 2Q numbers. But there's there's four or five states that have new medical initiatives on the ballot for November. There's several states that also have adult programs on the ballot for November. So the 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 excitement around this sector, uh, I know it's been a painful place to invest, but every 
exciting dynamic of the top down that you wanted to invest in three years ago is actually happening. The addressable market is growing as these states go and legalize. So states are being left alone. But if you get the federal medical cannabis dynamic and at least the endorsement for it, these markets are going to move. Steve? Yeah, so what Tim was talking about, too, is the Morax. So Kamala Harris and Jerry uh, Nadler introduced that bill. And if she is tapped to be the VP, this whole space will rocket higher. And if you look at the ownership, institutions own 9% of the publicly traded market cap in cannabis. Equate that to the Russell. They own 68% or the S&P institutions own 80%. So owning only 9% owned by institutions, this would be a rocket ship moving higher if it's legal and the institutions would come for it. They can't buy it right now. Right, because they can, they can only buy things that can be listed on exchanges and so therefore federally legal. As opposed, I mean, Tim, that, that has always been yep. the barrier in, in sort of the, the argument that there is sort of a huge wave of money that can still come into the yeah. sector. That's still waiting in the wings. And, and it's, it's also, I think, hurt the, the entire sector because it, it, a handful of companies that could list here and get institutional support really didn't deserve those valuations. Uh, and a lot of money was squeezed through a funnel. Uh, and you had a dynamic where uh, valuations didn't make sense. And a lot of people got frustrated and said, boy, this is not even a real sector. No, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, and, and Steve's right, you know, institutional support is needed. But I, I think the companies that are going to release uh, are, are going to be able to do that on their own. They're going to show that they're making money. Cureleaf reports in early August. This is maybe the largest company with the best balance sheet in the United States. Uh, you know, these guys, their numbers continue to get better. Their profitability is going higher. Uh, and their addressable market is only going up exponentially as more people come online in this country. All right. Uh, let's move on here and check out shares of, of this big mover today, Virgin Galactic, topping the tape. It was up nearly 16 percent. That stock has been a favorite, of course, among the retail traders set up 16. This is I mean, we've seen back to back gains here. Um, Karen, we've talked about, you know, the rise, for instance, in some of the EV stocks and the notion of scarcity. I mean, talk about scarcity. This is maybe the poster child for that notion. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, not surprisingly, I'm not, wouldn't be comfortable with this one. I just, I don't, uh, the scarcity, that's true. I think, you know, there's some decent talent behind it. So that's good as well. Um, Maybe it's, I'm biased because literally, well, not any amount of money, but there's a lot of money that I would pay to not have to go on one of these not moonshot, space shots, I guess they are. Uh, so I understand there's theoretically a gigantic total addressable market, but I think we're so far from this being a viable business. I don't get it. I don't Grasso get gets it, though. Grasso owns it. Yes. Yeah, so, so I, I, owned it for, I owned it for a couple of weeks now. I'm up a little bit over 20%, and it is what you said. It's the scarcity value. There's no other direct play in this space but this name. So if you have an ETF, this has to be included on it. There's no other direct ways to play it. It reminds me, Melissa, a lot of Tesla back in the old days when we talked about, Guy and I used to talk about short interest. This has a 34% short interest. There's not a lot to get this stock going further that's needed. Mm -hmm. I think you have much higher gains coming down the road. All right, final trade time, Tim. Tim? 
We lost him. We're going to Guy. Uh, these cybersecurity stocks, Mel, are doing something interesting. Fire up big today, Palo Alto Networks. I'll go with the latter, P-A-N-W. Karen. Yeah, I'll just talk about banks. I'm long for earnings next week and generally long. But if you want to uh, play it and know your downside, J.P. Morgan call spreads are the way to do it. Quick, Rosso. On semiconductor, ticker symbol O-N. Bonus hour fast coming up next. Stay tuned. Welcome to another special edition of Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Jim is off this week, but we are here to answer all your questions about the stocks you're trading right now. That's right. We're taking your questions. So tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. Here to get you some answers, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, and Karen Feinerman. We're going to dive into Alibaba, one of the hottest stocks with you traders at home right now, hitting a fresh all-time high today. The stock has added more than $100 billion in value this month alone. Tech stocks broadly were one of the bright spots in today's market, with the Nasdaq Composite managing to eke out another record even as the other indices fell. Check out some of the stocks leading the gains today. AMD, NetEase, Maxim Integrated, and Microchip Technology. we got to take a look at some of the other stocks that were high on traders' radar today. And for that, we go to Josh Lipton. Josh. So, Melissa, uh, let's start with the unusual options activity that we saw in today's trade. And for that, we turn uh, to our own Chris Hayes, who breaks out the names for us, including, Chris says, Helen of Troy, Mohawk Industries, Upwork, and Elf Beauty. Also, what was popular on Robinhood? Well, according to Robin Track, that would include Neo, Amazon, Tesla, Altimune, Apple and Alibaba. And speaking of Baba, a new fan on Wall Street, initiate, uh, Needham initiating coverage here with a buy rating. They price target there, 275 bucks, citing Alibaba's well-established ecosystem. And they say strategic position in the e-commerce value chain. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh. Thank you, Josh Lipton. So let's get right to it. Dive deeper into Alibaba. Here's our first question from James in Arizona. Hey, Fast Money team. My name is James Murray, and I'm a 24-year-old musician and investor from Phoenix, Arizona. Check out my band Jam now. I'm calling in about ticker symbol BABA. I just wanted to see if you believe that it's still a good long-term play, even with these uh, escalating tensions with China. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Take care. I'll go to the guy on the panel who's in a band himself. Tim, what do you say about BABA? Rock on, dude. (laughs) Rock on, dude. Let's let's make some sweet music there. And... uh, by the way, we, we need to hear some of those, those tapes. I, I think BABA is a, a, an undervalued stock relative to mega cap tech land. It trades uh, around 31 times. If you look at the price to earnings ratio or the peg ratio, um, this is you know, trading inside of one as far as I'm concerned. They have a cloud business like Alibaba, uh, like, like Amazon. They have an e-commerce business. They have a number of other uh, you know, essentially portals, both domestic and throughout Asia and Alibaba to me is executing and really has not necessarily been a trade, uh, you know, a trade war stock with the exception of the sentiment. And when we first got into the trade wars, there's no question that it was. So, again, I like Alibaba here. It's had a huge run. It's a $700 billion company and it's getting larger. Guy? I'd like to know what James's band plays. Tim assumes that it's a rock band. I mean, they could be into like cool jazz. Or, you know, mellow stuff. So, you know, maybe, right, Kenny G type stuff. Maybe James can send us a video tomorrow. Look at that. Is that your commentary on this whole, I mean, on Alibaba? Tim is, listen, 
If there's no better person on the network to speak about Alibaba than Tim Seymour, what could I possibly say that could um, override his comments? That is what I have to say. Yes. Pass on you. Let's go to Karen. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, have, I like Alibaba a lot. I have a decent-sized position in Alibaba. I think we got a very good opportunity earlier this year when coronavirus was in January, February, really... Um, hitting Chinese equities very hard. That presented a good opportunity. I agree with Tim. I don't think it's expensive. And I think there's a lot of growth there. There also, I don't, I, I, my, my sound dropped off for a little bit. I don't know if Tim talked about cloud where they're putting a lot of money and I think they'll see a lot of growth. And then also, remember, we don't see it in their income statement, they, but they own 33% of Ant Financial. And, you know, yep. there's stories recently that uh, in the last few days that maybe Ant Financial will list on Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know if that's true. But that's another potential catalyst. But I don't think it needs other catalysts. I think it, the valuation is cheap and they're, they're just right there. I mean, you know, when you think about an Amazon and that valuation, this is ridiculously cheap. So you I know, like it a lot. The cloud Good business. Tim did mention the cloud business. And if you think about the U.S. cloud yep. business and you think okay. about AWS, Amazon Web Services and the competitors that they have here, that doesn't really exist in China. I mean, Alibaba is not competing against the big cloud providers from the U.S. because they can't operate there, right, Tim? So it's really That's sort right. of a protected right. market that they have in China. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, they, they're dominating Tencent. You know, there's a, there's a handful of the bigger local players, but but they are continuing to build out that business. And 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 think about the enterprise uh, in China and think about what's happening across uh, their entire Internet infrastructure. So, uh, you know, that remember, that was the growth engine and why people are willing to pay up for Amazon. Uh, and it was less about e-commerce. And I think, you know, that's the underappreciated part. Totally agree with Karen on Ant Financial. Uh, and I do think this is a driver for the stock. All right, let's get to our next question here comes from William in Colorado. Hi, my name is William Kong, and I'm from Denver, Colorado. I'm a big fan of CNBC's Fast Money. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on Snapchat? Over the past month, the price has gone up, and I was just wondering, should I buy or should I sell? Guy, I know that uh, you are an avid snapper yourself, so I shall go to you Please. on this one. Love the Snapchat application. And if you are a big fan of Fast Money, which I'll take you at your word, you'll know that we did a power pitch, I believe, on the Snapchat a while back. Um, you know, kudos to Steve Grosser was on this in the teens. We sort of piggybacked that one for a while now. And I said it for a long time. Snapchat was close to being put out of business by Facebook, in my opinion, for a period of time. I think Facebook took their sort of their eye off the ball and focused on other things, much to Snapchat's benefit. Now with this whole TikTok news, as you know, I'm also a huge TikToker. I got that application recently as well. I think it really augurs well for Snapchat into earnings on the 21st. So I stay with the name here. It's had a huge move. I think it can go higher from here. I would just add, I mean, I think all of the social media stocks, the Pinterest, the Snapchats, um, you know, even Google, have been the beneficiary of this TikTok talk about whether or not it would be banned here. Sure. So that's been part of the run. I mean, for my mind, I actually think something um, like Twitter or Google I'd, is less expensive, and um, I'd rather be in those. Look, there's no question that 
there is a marginal uh, you know, gain for Snapchat, if not a major gain, off of Facebook's troubles. Uh, remember uh, where Instagram really was put in place to, to take out Snapchat, and for a long time it looked like Facebook had totally uh, won this war. Uh, but Snap has been battling back. Their engagement numbers have gotten a lot better. I have not been bullish on the stock, so I'm not going to act like this was a name uh, that I really thought people should run into. But the scarcity value in social media investments, much in the same way advertisers are finding scarcity uh, in terms of where they can place those ad dollars on social media, means that Snap will get some. And, and therefore, uh, I, I'm not sure that the fundamentals have changed bottom up in the company, but the top down within the sector and in terms of the investment community still has a, a tailwind for Snapchat. All right, let's get to our next question. Hey, I'm Justin out here in Los Angeles. I've been into NASDAQ since 2012, and one of my proudest entries since then has been Square. I saw the potential when I bought my first concert t-shirt with a credit card. My question is, will the closures of brick-and-mortar retail have more of an impact on Square's long-term growth than the cash app successes, the recent ventures into banking and lending, and do you still see PayPal as their primary fintech competitor as these initiatives hold throughout the pandemic? Thank you. Let's go to Karen for that one. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of parts to it. I think that um, I don't know if when you say brick and mortar, if you think if that's sort of a um, proxy for small business, because I think you can see a lot of small business um, use other Square apps beside just the little reader. Uh, the, um, but I think that they're making themselves sort of more important in every aspect of business. However, all that having been said, the stock has just gone berserk. Um, any payments stock has gone crazy. And I think Square Cash is getting a huge multiple, perhaps more than it deserves. And I'd be, wouldn't be surprised if they start to see pressure, margin pressure in that business. So it's a great, great company, but I think the stock is pretty far ahead of itself. Yeah. Guy? I agree. I think Cowan downgraded the stock today. I think they raised their price target to 117. I do think you're going to get a better entry point than uh, 129 or so that it closed at today. PayPal's been a monster, obviously, as well. I think they, I think they report earnings on July 29th. Uh, again, I think that's probably a name you want to own, but it, it's just these moves have been astronomical. So understand when they report. I think Square, you can get a chance lower. I think PayPal, you have to look for opportunities to take money off the table and earnings at the end of the month. If not Square and FinTech, Tim, then where? Well, um, I, I do think PayPal is, is one place. Look, frictionless uh, transactions and cashless transactions are, are clearly the way to go. Um, by the way, I mean, these questions are amazing. That, that, I mean, Justin you know, was, was giving us about as much information as a lot of folks that come on our show do, or maybe that I do. So uh, good job at home. Uh, and I do think you have a case here where, uh, you know, think about the, the haves and the have-nots of the new normal. And by the way, our great uh, uh, production team that are helping us from, from the Jim Cramer show. This is something I hear Jim talk about, investing in the new normal and staying in those investments. Because, you know, the reality is not only are we seeing dynamics in the economy with, with the virus and, and some concerning trends, but 
it. But some of these trends that are new normal are ones that stay with us. The stickiness of the Square platform and how they've been able to get into consumer lending and play a role uh, in all of these PPP loans in addition to the cash app means I think they're going to be a major part of tomorrow's trade. And I don't like the valuation either. In fact, I was taking profits a few weeks ago, still have some position, wish I'd held the whole thing. But um, I think valuation is rich. All right, let's hit the Twitter machine for the next question. Donnie asks, at what price target should I sell Twitter? Thank you. Two exclamation points. Guy Dami. 39 and a half. See it? Bang. I have an answer for you. And I'm glad you asked because we've talked about that now for a while. Kudos to the great Dan Nathan at risk reversal for those playing at home who power pitched that sucker. I think we're just trading 30 or so. We've been bullish in Twitter, I think, since mid-May when President Trump went after all the social media platforms, said that's your opportunity. It's proven to be correct. I think it trades up to the prior high in February, which, if memory serves, is 39 and a half. Tim, do you have a level? I, you know, I, hard not to take guys level. That has been a level that's failed four or five times when there's been uh, look, these these catalysts and these drivers and these big trades in Twitter. We've had a handful of them in the last three years, and they are spikes that are tough to sustain uh, until we can break out of there. That is the level to sell at. Um, I do think that the valuation of the company is sometimes misunderstood. I, I, I like the trends in terms of their, of their engagement and their DAUs uh, and the ad revenues are, are what they are. I, I think they have the ability to specialize. Uh, the advertised targeting with the way that the, the, uh, the, the data is collected on the network. So I think this is something that people are underappreciating in terms of how they can monetize their ad dollars. All right. Coming up, we're taking a lot more of your questions this hour. So keep them coming. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We may answer them on air. Up next, are you looking for Zen in your investments? We'll tell you if you can find it in shares of Lululemon. Total Request Fast Money is back right after this. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. We got a couple of questions today on some of the biggest names in athletic wear, Nike and Lululemon. So let's kick it off with Lulu. One viewer wants to know if this popular athleisure brand can outrun the competition. Take a listen. Hello, Fast Money. My name is Jackson. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I really appreciate you taking my message. Uh, my question is about Lululemon, L-U-L-U, as Malls are beginning to open up around Virginia. I'm noticing that Lulu is one of the few brick-and-mortar retail spaces that still have a substantial amount of foot traffic. Um, you, you see customers willing to wait in line for over an hour. They all have masks on, but there's still an incredible amount of enthusiasm for the brand. And I have family in the middle of the country, and they tell me the same thing. Uh, so I'd love to hear there's actually more upside for a stock that's already had an incredible run. Karen, what do you say about Lulu? Yeah. Um, we said, is it better than the competition? No question. I don't even think there is any real competition for them. Uh, I, I was long Lulu from sort of the low 220s to 300, um, where very sadly I sold it. I think that, I mean, there's a lot to love. Uh, just, you know, their ability to maintain margins even during the coronavirus pandemic uh, shutdown was really amazing. They have a great online business, which served them well, which will continue to serve them well. I wonder if they could even shrink their footprint and maybe uh, save on rent expense. Um, they're just an extraordinary company, and I think they're going to continue to keep growing. I don't love necessarily the mirror acquisition, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt because they've done an extraordinary job with just about everything else. All that having been said, it isn't cheap. It shouldn't be cheap. It is the premier, it's one of the premier retailers out there, bar none. 
I wish I still owned it. I, I guess I could make that happen by buying some tomorrow. It's expensive for sure, but it deserves to be expensive. I think it's probably good to own. Tim, what do you say? Well, the mere acquisition, I, I realized was a surprise, but it, it's that bolt-on transaction that gets them into kind of this omni-channel that I think people believe they can. And all the reasons that Karen talked about in terms of the quality of the brand, the innovation, uh, and, and the macro around athleisure and, and what people are doing. And so, again, investing in, in new normal trends are um, people are sitting around their house trying to feel kind of sporty and in some sense doing a lot of it at home. But uh, the other big driver for Lulu has been the growth of their addressable market. And I do mean men. I don't know whether guys wearing those ABCs. Uh, I know Joe Kernan comes on our show and talks about that he is. Um, but there's no question uh, that they are having an impact in menswear. And, and that's a big part of why the stock has been, uh, I think, re-rating during you know, the last three to six months. I mean, I was wearing yoga. I mean, the other day I did squawk from home, squawk box, and I was wearing yoga pants on the bottom. I mean, just between uh, just yoga pants right on the on. bottom. Yeah, no, you know, between business us. on the top, <laughs> yoga on the bottom, guy. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I know, you know, shout out to Joe Kernan, who I know is watching right now, probably <laughs> in his Lululemon. Big fan of the show. Which the visual of that is not particularly pleasant. But I will say this. You know, the valuation, 51 times next year's number sounds expensive. Then you look, they have probably 45% EPS growth. So maybe it's not that expensive. And I happen to think the mirror acquisition was a $500 million. I think that, to me, is a bit of a lottery ticket that could probably pay huge dividends for them as people work out, see themselves getting in better shape in their Lululemon stuff, buying more Lululemon stuff. I think it feeds into their ecosystem. So I do think it's brilliant. Here's my concern. Stock traded up to 325, I think, in early June. Pushed back. It's got to close above 325 for the next breakout level. So if you're trading it, thanks for the question, you buy it on a breakout above 325 or you look for a pullback in the low 300s. All right. Let's get to our next question on Nike. Here it is. Hey guys, thanks for taking my call. My name's Trevor, I'm in Marietta, Georgia. My question is about Nike. So at the end of 2019, Nike was really firing on all cylinders and then coronavirus happened and created, I think, a lot of challenges for the company. Um, I'm curious as to what you think the stock will do here throughout the rest of the year and then even long-term as well. Uh, Tim, what do you tell Trevor in Marietta? Uh, Trevor, thanks for joining us. Great question. Uh, Nike, one of the great American brands. Uh, their last, uh, you know, look, the last quarter they just released uh, about two weeks ago, uh, lost 51 cents. Street was expecting, you know, down small. So uh, missed there. The exit rate on China sales was uh, more or less in line, but people were really watching those numbers. But if you listen to the CEO Donahue, he, he basically was very bullish on the medium to long term. And that's really where they sought to focus. And their, their direct to consumer business and their digital uh, footprint uh, is what they're very excited in, in terms of gross margin. They should be. But um, they're well ahead of schedule. They're now targeting 50 percent. The old target was 30. Uh, and I think they'll get there. That's part of what's made uh, Nike uh, you know, that much far ahead of the competition. So in terms of margins. But the innovation, here we are talking about it again in footwear. Uh, this is what people needed to see out of Nike in North America about a year and a half ago. And that's what spurred a big turnaround in the stock. It has $100 as a place to really, I think, push through. It got above that, but barely. Uh, and that's a barrier to the stock. Can you like Nike and Lulu, Karen? 
Yes, I think you can. I think they're, they're similar in that they're the premier operator in their name. They both have a very good online business. I think Nike actually has a bigger online business as a percentage of sales than does Lululemon. Um, one thing that's similar also is that Tim talked a little bit about margins. Even with the very difficult quarter that they announced in North America, they still had very good average selling prices. So to me, that talks about you know, the strength of the brand. And the short term is bad with things you know, reclosing and also not a lot of sports going on. You know, when you have big sports events, um, that obviously can be a driver for sales for Nike. All that having been said, though, I think they also are a premier operator. And I think, I don't know if it's the back half of this year or next year, they'll get back there. I like Nike, even right here. I like Nike. So here's the flip side, Mel. So in January, uh, the stock made an all-time high, I think 105 or close to it. And by that March 23rd uh, low for the broader market, it was a $60 stock. And then we ramped all the way back recently to 104 and a half, 105. And if apparently, at least it looks as though we may have failed. Earnings are behind us, so you don't really have a catalyst in terms of earnings. Now it's a broader market game. So the double tops scare me. The market scares me. I think you're going to have an opportunity to buy Nike a little bit cheaper than I think where we trade, 98 or so. So I would be cautious here. All right. Coming up, call it the Elon effect, how Tesla is changing the landscape for car makers and investors, what it means for your hot trades. And later, is all that ordering in that you're doing going to help Domino's stock deliver some gains? And as we head to break, take a look at some of the stocks that bucked the big down move of the Dow. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. If you've been watching us all week, it's no surprise to you that electric vehicle makers and their suppliers are some of the hottest stocks of traders right now. Phil has got more on, uh, on this trend. And Phil, a blast from the past looks to go public again. Yeah, we're talking about Fisker. And a lot of people might be saying, well, wait a second, Fisker. They made the Carmo way back in 2012, 2013. Then they went bankrupt. What's going on? Henrik Fisker has his own company. And this is the vehicle that they expect to roll out in 2022. It is called the Ocean. And the reason we're showing you this is because there is a report that Fisker is in talks to go public. It would be an IPO through a SPAC with Spartan Energy Acquisition Corp. reported to be the company that would lead this deal, a $2 billion deal. Let's see if that happens. If it does, it would not be a surprise because it would likely be structured similar to the deal with Nikola. And we've talked about this with Nikola and this stock and how it's been red hot. Look at the market cap. When you look at Nikola, Neo, which is out of China, as well as with... Uh, Workhorse, when you look at those companies and their market caps, they have exploded over the last three months. In fact, their returns over the last three months compared with the big three automakers, you would think that these are the guys who are cranking out millions of vehicles. The returns for the EV stocks, let's call them that, over the last three months since April, up 400 to 700%. Meanwhile, the big three returns over that same time frame, down 19 to 35%. And we are calling this the Elon effect. And what is the Elon effect? Look, they've had Q2 deliveries that topped estimate. Their stock is up 233% this year. And the EV demand is expected to grow, not just for Tesla, but EVs overall are expected to increase in sales, let's say, over the next 10 to 15 years. How much depends on who you talk with and how optimistic they are about the market. Tesla reports its Q2 results on July 22nd. And if it reports a profit, Melissa... That means four consecutive quarters of being profitable. Mm. 
That is the last key hurdle to be included in the S&P 500, which, as we've talked about, and I know you guys have talked about for some time, would uh, certainly add even more investors to the Tesla base of uh, shareholders. It would be the biggest company to be added to the S&P 500, and the S&P 500 has $4.5 trillion in assets indexed to it, so could be a big boost. (laughs) Bill, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. All right, we've got a question actually on one of the most popular stocks on the Robinhood app. Hi, this is Darren from San Jose, California. As a new retail investor, I had a question about Plug Power. A friend told me about it in March, and I've been watching it since it was just over $3. Even though it is down today, it has doubled since finalizing two new acquisitions. My question is, how good are these acquisitions, and what effect can a company like Nikola have on a hydrogen fuel cell company like Plug Power? A very sharp question. Let's dig deeper into Plug Power with Colin Rush, the senior analyst over at Oppenheimer. Colin, great to speak with you. Um, are you a fan of the two acquisitions? You know, I, I am. So, you know, when you look at the hydrogen um, space and you look at motive hydrogen, um, Plug is far and away the leader in terms of experience. They've got over a billion miles of, uh, of data on their systems, having uh, entered into the material handling market where there's a, there's a compelling uh, set of economics for their solutions. And so when we look at these recent acquisitions, they're focused on, on two things. One, leaning up the, the hydrogen supply chain for their customers, so actually streamlining that, but then also reducing the cost in a, in a very material way. And so the United Hydrogen Group acquisition uh, allows them to control their, uh, their platform for uh, delivery and, and uh, logistics around hydrogen, but then the, the Geiner ELX uh, acquisition really is uh, an essential piece of their cost reduction strategy uh, uh, for hydrogen production. Um, so we're, we're actually very bullish on these two acquisitions and on the, the impact of flux economics. It's Karen. Let me ask you a question, Colin. How big is their addressable market? If you want to be really bullish on it, it sounds like you are bullish. Where are we going to see revenues maybe two or three years from now? You know, so the company's highlighted, uh, you know, a, a target of $1.25 billion in revenue by 2024. Um, you know, $750 million of that will come from the material handling market. Um, you know, $250 million, they're looking at the over-the-road market. And then uh, the, the other $250 million will come from the hydrogen, uh, hydrogen business. Now, when, when we look at what's going on, you know, broadly in the transportation sector, I think one of the most interesting areas is really in the last mile and middle mile, uh, uh, the, you know, vehicle, um, you know, vehicle transformation. We're seeing um, different fuel sources leveraging off of um, different applications, uh, and we're seeing, you know, the move towards hydrogen coming out of warehouses, uh, you know, where, where Plug actually has, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of infrastructure in place for fueling. Um, into you know new routes, uh, new vehicle design for different applications, and and certainly uh, it's going to take some time, and so we think that'll take you know two to three years, but it's very much underway, and really being delivered, uh, being driven by what's going on in, in terms of the delivery market right now. Hey, Colin, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. And, and again, maybe I'm thick, but I'm just trying, still trying to understand why now for hydrogen cell technology? Um, and I realize that having the infrastructure and the ability to service uh, and, and fuel these cars is a big part of it. Um, but this has been a long time in waiting. And is it, has it been driven by the adaption of, of EV? Or, you know, help us understand why we're hearing about this now, because it almost seems as if um, just as you're getting EV mania um, is only when you started to hear about hydrogen coming into play. 
you know, it's uh, it's an important question and one that I think is, is sometimes misunderstood. So that the actual motors and, and much of the electrical infrastructure in uh, an EV is actually highly leverageable for hydrogen uh, fuel cell uh, as, a, as a power source. And so many of these vehicles are going to end up being hybrid uh, vehicles where you've got, um, you know, batteries and uh, a fuel cell in, integrated in them. But the, the basic platform, um, you know, separate from the, the, the power source is actually uh, entirely common. And so the, the advent of, um, you know, growth in, in EVs is, is actually enabling um, cost reduction for the hydrogen vehicles, uh, for, for the balance of, uh, the balance of the vehicles. Uh, and it's, uh, really, you know, offering up an opportunity for, uh, buyers of these vehicles to diversify their fuel source. Hey, Colin, just a lot, last quick question here. You've got an outperform rating on plug, uh, and an $8 price target, and the stock is, is almost at nine at this point. We've seen this sort of mania hit this, corner of the market. And I'm wondering how, how much froth do you think there is um, in, in sort of this EV space? You know, it's, it's an important question and, and something that, you know, we're, we're playing catch up on this, you know, across the sector. These stocks have moved so aggressively um, and so quickly on, uh, on some of the strategic moves that, that we've been, you know, bullish on, you know, whether it's Plug or Tesla or some of the other names that we cover. Um, and, and I think there's a couple of things that we're pointing to is one, you know, the, the impact of, uh, low interest rates inflating these assets to the, the fact that many of these EV, uh, and, and newer technology startups in the, the hydrogen space actually are fairly well capitalized relative to what's going on with the traditional automakers, which are highly levered at this point at, you know, commonly 80 to 85%, um, you know, levered on, on the balance sheets. And so they're going to have to go through restructuring and, and what that's allowing for is an opportunity for, for accelerated growth for some of these newer technologies, especially as, as some of the bigger buyers, the vehicles in the transportation market and the logistics space are looking to go to zero emission vehicles. And it's, it's really an environment where you could see, you know, better than expected growth. Now, in terms of valuation, mm-hmm. I think the entire market is figuring out what's, um, you know, what's overbought. Uh, and what's underbought right now, we're expecting a, a very volatile um, third quarter here from a trading perspective, even though the recovery has been a little bit better than expected in 2Q, mm-hmm. or the, the, the sell-off has been better than expected in 2Q from a fundamental standpoint, you know, the recovery over the long term is, is still uncertain for us. And so we're expecting it to be a very volatile environment and to see some of these spikes and, and retrenches. So I think it's a good time to be a tactical trader. Colin, thank you. Colin Rush of Oppenheimer. Guy, what's your bottom line on this? So, Darren, I think Colin answered all your question in terms of the fundamentals of this company. So let's let's answer your question in terms of trading it. You said you've watched it go from three to nine. Now it's, I think, an eight dollar stock. At a certain point, you just got to immerse yourself in it. So if you buy 10 to 15 shares, uh, then you're in the game. Then you're going to really watch it closely. So I can't tell you where it's going tomorrow, but get yourself in the game. Start a position now. Uh, Barclays actually just downgraded the stock but put a $10 price target on it. So I think those are the types of things you're going to be seeing. But you've got to get in at some point, and I apologize about Flip barking. <laughs> Stop it! Flip disagrees with you. <laughs> or sorry, Tim, you're raising your hand. Go ahead. Typically. <laughs> yeah, first of all, well, Flip, Flip is, is speaking out. Um, so because I'm calling for a teacher to, to, to answer my question, I just want to point out maybe a quick trade school Phil talked about the Fisker SPAC, and I just think for investors that don't understand what SPACs are, let's quickly explain that. They're special purpose acquisition corps, and they're called blank check companies, and they've been particularly popular in the last couple of years, especially with a ton of liquidity. But it, it, you know, they essentially are underwritten by an investment bank, and the sponsor actually makes a fair amount of money just on the structure. But, but in hot sectors, 
like EV or hydrogen or cannabis. We've seen a ton of SPACs get raised. Um, you're seeing this vehicle become more and more popular. But I think a lot of this is a function of the market we're in. Uh, I don't think these types of deals get done uh, in a world where the Fed hadn't flooded the market with liquidity. Yeah. Good point there. Coming up, it was another painful day for the airline stocks, but does anyone on the panel see an opportunity to enter the space? Plus, what does earth science have to do with investing? A total blast from my past about what one stock will do in the future. Stay with us. Welcome back to a special edition of Fast Money. Our panel of traders has been tackling your questions all week long. The next one is from Aaron in New York, wants to know about a stock experiencing more than a few headwinds this year. Hi, this is Aaron from New York, and uh, I'd like to get your outlook on trading Boeing stock given uh, this pandemic and airlines canceling uh, new orders and deliveries for the foreseeable future, and also Boeing still facing challenges uh, from the aftermath of uh, the 737 MAX debacle. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your question, Aaron. Tim, what do you tell him? Aaron in New York, um, I, I think you stay the course on Boeing, but it, it's it, there's going to be turbulence. Sorry for that. Um, but I, I think the recertification of the MAX in October is the first uh, you know, real step to, to, to seeing the stock begin to re-rate. Uh, there's no question airlines uh, have a very difficult path to uh, fulfilling anything close to their order book, or you see a handful of them going back and, and, and recutting their deals. So I, I think it's, it's still very unclear. The liquidity dynamics for the company, I think, for the most part, uh, have been taken off the table. In fact, you know, I, I think uh, they've raised a lot of capital and built a pretty decent buffer here. Um, Long term, uh, this will emerge as as the you know commercial and defense giant that it that it was. And again, their defense business is not dead. Uh, their defense business is still very very strong. So I like Boeing. Uh, I'm a I'm a shareholder at higher levels. Um, I haven't jumped out, and and uh, I expect to stay in for uh, some of this recovery. Karen. I hear what Tim says, and I agree, I guess, in the longer term. But I sort of look at the pain of who their giant customers are. And if you look at what's happening in the airline space, I don't think the stock pullbacks actually reflect how bad things are. I mean, the stocks are up a lot from the bottom. And what I always like to do is look at the debt, because debt investors are much smarter than equity investors. And so I look at the debt of something like a Delta. And it is trading at, you know, somewhat distressing levels. So if your customer base, if Boeing's customer base, is in as much distress as I believe the airlines are in, then I think it's going to be very hard for them for a while. I don't know how long a while is. But so for me, I would probably stay away from Boeing. All right. Speaking of airlines, let's get to our next question. It is a tweet from Brian on Twitter who asks, at what point can you begin starting a position in airlines? Is Spirit Airlines a safer play, safer in quotes, because it's primarily domestic and, of course, the ticker is safe, save guy. Yeah, I don't necessarily know that they're any safe plays, but what you have working for you now is the fact that a lot of these airlines, well, most all of the airlines have pulled back significantly from the move we saw a couple weeks ago. So Delta, for example, if you go back to May and if you watch the show, you'll know the day that they announced they were reducing pilots from 14,000 to 7,000 is the day the stock made its 52-week low reverse and closed higher. And we talked about buying it for a trade probably goes to 31. Well, it actually went to 35. 
and now you see where it is now. So at least it's giving you an opportunity. I'm not convinced the worst is over, but at least you're not buying these at levels that were the stocks were trading at, you know, two and a half, three weeks ago. All right. There is still time, still time to send in your trading questions. So make sure to tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. Up next, shares of Chipotle trading near all-time highs. Too late to get in on this one. We'll get some answers. And as we head to break, take a look at some of the stocks that have been most traded on Robinhood over the past month. Welcome back to the special edition of Total Request Fast Money. We've hit tech, we've hit athleisure, we've hit transportation. Now we turn to the restaurants. We've got questions on some big names in delivering in and taking out. First up, a question on Chipotle from Jason at the Air Force Academy in Colorado. Hey, y'all, it's Jason from the Air Force Academy out in Colorado Springs. My question for you today is about Chipotle. Their first quarter online sales grew by 81% and now accounts for 26% of their total sales. They've been cooking up new highs for the past several weeks and their stock price has doubled since March. My question for you, is it too late to get in on this deal? Thanks and blue skies. By the way, Chipotle got a new street high price target of $1,450 from analysts over at Piper today. I think this is the second question that we've gotten from the Air Force Academy guy. But uh, yeah, they're huge fans. And apparently, thank you. Listen, I love the academies are great. I grew up in the shadow of West Point. I mean, I love it's fantastic. And if you go back, if you watch Mad Money, which typically airs at this time, I think it was June 2nd that Jim interviewed Brian Nickel, the CEO of Chipotle. And he told the story. And this is a lot like Domino's. It's become a technology story. And yes, it's expensive valuation, 60 times next year's numbers. But they have the earnings growth to back it up, plus the technology, plus I think they partnered with Grubhub at the end of June. There's a lot going for this stock in the earnings, I believe, on the 22nd. So although it's had a huge run, I think you stay with the name. They were well positioned going into COVID, certainly with all the investments in technology and, and the app and all that, Karen. Um, what do you think of this one? I mean, I... I the growth has been nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, they've done a tremendous job. I think, yeah, digital, they really nailed it. That was huge for them. And I think that was just the beginning. I think we'll continue to see that. All that having been said, uh, at some point, valuation matters. It hasn't here. And I guess deservedly not, because they've just continued to put up enormous numbers. But I look at 100 times earnings, and then next year, 50, I don't know, 58 times earnings. And then in 2022, 45 times earnings. And so to me, it's price for perfection. It deserves to be a huge premium because they have delivered. But I feel like in a, in a hot market like we've had, if they trip a little and it's price to perfection, there's a fair amount of downside. So I think you might have a chance to enter it at a better price than here. But I would have said that maybe 400, 500, 600 points ago. All right. Uh, let's get so to the next. I've missed the boat here. Let's get to the next question. Hi, this is Gregory. I'm in Los Angeles. Big fan of Fast Money. Also becoming a big fan of Domino's Pizza. As a chef, more the stock than the food. But I'm wondering, it's kind of the perfect concept. Delivery in the middle of a pandemic. No restaurants to sit in. Just question whether the value is there or whether it's overcooked, pardon the pun. Also, congrats to Guy and Dan on the setup. Really enjoying that. Thanks for uh, tackling this one. Chef Gregory, Guy Adami, what do you tell Chef Gregory? Well, I love, first of all, I mean, these questions are fantastic. And I tell him 
Stock has bounced off the lows. It is a technology story. I think it's going to test that 397 level that we saw a month and a half, two months ago. It's not, I don't think it's as expensive as Chipotle, which I guess you have that going for you. And by the way, Melon, I know you know this. I worked there and I we know. got the video to prove it. Show it. <laughs> you looked very uh, adept at putting that sauce on that dough, guy. Yeah, I like the music that accompanies. You know something? This. I don't. Mean, I am not even going to dignify that with the response. Okay, just so you know. Yeah, I don't know if that makes it um, more attractive as an investment, Karen, or less attractive. The fact that Guy Dami once worked there and made pizzas that people actually consumed. Yeah, well, we've had mixed, I guess, on where Guy Adami's worked. UPS having a tough time. Can't hold a job, Lyft. apparently. Also having a tough time. Apparently not. But he's had this one for quite a while. So, um, but actually, Domino's, I, it is cheaper than Chipotle. You are right, Gregory. They are, they, you know, they, this is built for a pandemic, which seems to be going on longer than we think. Um, you know, the one negative I would point out, maybe college campuses aren't quite what they used to be, uh, less crowded going forward. But I actually, I like this name, even though it is really expensive. Yeah, look, 30 times uh, 2021, but I, I, Domino's certainly much more than Chipotle, and obviously it's a, a relative value, significantly cheaper. But again, they're offering value. They're offering a digital presence. They're offering brand loyalty. Uh, and they're, you know, at one point we're offering major international expansion. I, I, I like this story. Uh, they, they clearly come out of this a stronger play, even though they were crushing it before that. And remember, their earnings, I think, in, in the third week of February, stock launched higher uh, and has basically taken all that momentum back. And I think it's going higher. All right. Uh, coming up, we've actually got time for a few more questions. And uh, these ones get a little personal, so don't miss it. Welcome back to Fast Money. Um, you've got questions. We've got answers. The traders had questions, and we have answers. Remember James Murray from Phoenix, Arizona? Earlier in the show, he asked us about Alibaba, and we were wondering about his musical style. Well, now we know. We did a little sleuthing. We took a look at James's Spotify page, and apparently he is a fan of soft rock, and uh, presumably his, his band would be of that genre. Uh, so there you go, okay. Guy and Tim. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like Yacht Rock? Nice or what do you think? Like, uh, well, like, you can look at the Spotify page uh, yourself and, and check it out and uh, determine. Uh, but uh, sounds, you know, there are great fans of Yacht Rock out there, by the way. Um, we got to get to a question here many, not me. um, from Justin on Twitter uh, that says, Is GW Pharma a buy given the path to FDA approval of their MS dr- uh, drug and broadening support for cannabis in the U.S.? Thanks. Uh, Tim, we'll go to you. Cannabis King. Yeah, is actually the biggest position in my ETF. Um, so the, the recent trials on the MS and the specificity have been certainly almost additional value that people had expected. Uh, remember, Epidiolex is, is certainly their cannabinoid-based uh, uh, treatment for, for epilepsy, especially childhood epilepsy. That's proven to have uh, enormous impact. Uh, and, and also from an insurance and some of the dynamics just about them uh, actually getting paid and penetration, uh, we're actually seeing them hold ground. And then they've broken through across in Europe. And in fact, I think a better penetration than people had expected. So this is a, a, a very real company and a company that's doing very interesting things on the botanical front through the FDA. And, and uh, uh, I think it's a stock you should own. Yeah. I'm overweight. Guy, what do you say? $130 has been a huge level of resistance for quite some time. I think it goes through. They just got that reclassification, I think, in the U.K. Goldman Sachs, I think, is pretty positive on this name. 
I think if you want to be in the space, this is the one name you absolutely have to own. All right, let's get to our next tweet. It comes from a familiar face. Well, at least to me, a familiar face. My grade school teacher, Mr. Suchman, the tweet says, congrats from your old earth science teacher. Enjoy every magic moment with your babies. Should I buy Tesla at this time? If so, should I sell Facebook or Amazon to make the purchase? Hugs. So that was that was ninth grade or eighth grade. I don't remember nice. exactly, uh, Karen. Very but uh, you know, he's yeah. got a he's got a good question. So well, he's got a good question. How lucky for him he got to be your teacher. I think you know, uh, talking about enjoying those babies. I think you know when uh, when you first got pregnant was when to buy Tesla. Apparently, so it was cooking at the same time. Now, I mean, it's just gone parabolic. As I understand, the, you know, we always talk about here uh, scarcity value and pure play value, which it, which it has, of course. Um, but that doesn't mean buy it at any price, no matter what. I do think you will get a chance to buy it later. You will never have a better student than Melissa Lee, though, no matter what. <laughs> Guy, what do you say for Mr. Suchman? See, I would, I would push back and say you must have been an impossible student in high school. One of those kids, <laughs> knowing all the answers, constantly raising your hand for every single question. You know, the annoying student that I would stay as far away from as possible. My sense, I don't know, maybe, what's his name, Mr. Suchman? Maybe mm-hmm. he can uh, clear that up on, a, on, a, on another tweet or another video. <laughs> Do you have advice? Do you, have advice, do you have advice from my earth science teacher yeah, or not? Yeah, I'll give you advice. Go, I'll, I'll give you the advice you want to hear. When, when Elon Musk at $700 in May said the stock was too expensive, that sell-off lasted a day. The stock has doubled since that. It is impervious to any bad news. They're clearly flying with some sort of air cover. So despite the move, you got to stay with the name. By the way, I loved earth science. I mean, oblate spheroid still is rattling around in my head. It's fond memory. Um, next tweet comes from another Room Raider guy. This one's actually for you. It says, the wainscoting is impressive, but what is that color? Linda Ooh. Snow, what's the color in this room? Do you know? <laughs> no, Linda's here. She might know the color. It's a lovely blue. What is it, Linda? Is it blue? It is a blue. It is a blue. I can't... Look, she's going to, we don't have enough time. We're going to get the Benjamin Moore, the whatever, you know, the thing with like 9,000 yeah, different. Yeah. Pala- Palladian, Palladian blue. The color wheel. Whoa. <laughs> Thank you, Linda, for your contribution to our special Fast Money edition. All right, finally, this is a tweet from Alex. She's still talking. Uh, do you all get along in the after hours or is it all just a show? You all do a great job, Tim. Do we all get along in the after hours? <laughs> you know, amazingly, we have even more fun uh, when we get off the set. So, uh, you know, this show is such a great format, though, because uh, I feel like we are able to kind of hang out and you know, talk with the viewers. So uh, but the answer is yes. It's kind of like a family. Um, and, you know, when you're not at the family dinner, they talk about you. So be careful. Show up. Yeah. Karen. <laughs> yeah. No, we do really like each other. You know, we have some fun, do some things outside of the office, but Guy never comes. He never, never. I don't <laughs> know why. That's right. That's like a know. true behind know. the scenes. I mean, scenes. I like him a lot. It's but too bad. It is. Yeah. Right. Blame. We are family. Listen to that. Uh, we that's true. Hold on. Hold on. I knew that that's song. The, that's the mad, no, that song, that's the mad money people playing 
one of the top three worst songs of all time. All right. Awful. Thanks, guys. That was fun. Another supersize edition tomorrow night. Shark Tank is up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.